Hey everybody, welcome to Bedside Matters, the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact every single one of us every single day. And here, what we try and do is give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and thus healthier. I'm Peter Tilden, and I'm joined by Anna Vicino and Dr. David Kipper. It's great to see you guys. Hi, everyone. Great to be here. So today's show, you guys, we're going to be talking about possible help for binge drinkers in the form of a pill, plus the mental health of the nation in response to all these shootings. Male birth control pills coming soon, really? Right now, we're relegated, I think, to condoms or the surgery. This would be a big breakthrough. And then we have a caller, as a matter of fact, who has a sexual question for Dr. Kipper. But let's start with this binge drinking pill, David. This is really interesting. So binge drinking is defined as heavy drinking within a two-hour period until you hit the legal limit. Do you guys know what the legal limit is? I don't, because I don't drink. 0.08. You had, you've been pulled over or you're studying for your test. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was pulled over once when we, I was in, uh, I was 19 and we were shooting the Chattahoochee in inner tubes. And uh, literally a policeman was on the corner. like, you kids get over here. We're like splishing to get over. But I didn't get a ticket because I and wasn't And it drinking. clearly taught you a lesson about where you have to stop at 0.07. <laughs> so <laughs> for women, the usual amount is about four drinks. And for men, it's about five drinks. That seems like a lot of drinks in two hours, doesn't it? I think so. I definitely think so because I don't drink. So yes, that seems like a lot a lot of right. drinks. Yes. What is yeah. interesting about this is most of the people that are binge drinkers are not alcoholics. They have no dependency or addiction on alcohol. Statistically, it's about one in six adults has an issue with binge drinking. So what's the demographic of the binge drinkers? They tend to be younger, 18 to 34 years old. Men are at a greater likelihood than women. It tends to be higher among high-income people, 75000 a year or more. And geographically, the Midwest is the most vulnerable demographic. So why do people binge drink? Peter, Anna, do you have a thought? To blow off steam. To, I mean, I guess, because if they're not physically addicted to alcohol, it seems like yes. a stress reliever, right? It must be some genetic thing to... Oh, like a circadian a rhythm, you go through rhythms where you need it or something, maybe? Both of those are true. Uh, the biggest issue is social anxiety. So if someone's oh. going to an event, they're sort of nervous about meeting new people. So that's usually the bigger issue. The risks associated with binge drinking are fairly obvious. There's an increased number of accidents, falling, burns, traffic accidents. There's more violence that we see with binge drinkers, homicides, suicides, sexual assaults, a higher likelihood to get a sexually transmitted disease. But David, when you're saying higher in comparison to the general public or in comparison to you know, non-drinkers, regular drinkers? In comparison to the general public. Ah, not regular. Okay, got it. And it also, binge drinking also aggravates chronic illnesses. So you have chronic illness like hypertension or you've had strokes, liver disease, even cancers, are more at risk of getting worse if you're a binge drinker. The costs from binge drinking, I think, was an interesting statistic. $191 billion a year lost work productivity. And obviously, the healthcare expenditures go up and the associated criminal justice costs go up. But as Anna mentioned, there is a treatment for this, and it's called naltrexone. 
Naltrexone is a receptor blocker. It blocks receptors for what we call the mu opioid, opioid receptors. And those are the receptors that grab onto uh, not only opiates, but endorphins. And these are the happy brain chemicals. So naltrexone blocks that. And these have been prescribed for alcohol abuse since the 1980s. The way these are taken for binge drinking is that you take it before a night out or when you're having a craving. It can be given as a pill, uh, which is a 50 milligram pill, or it can be given as an injectable to ensure your compliance. So people that don't really trust themselves, they can get an injection that will last a month in their system. Wow. You can't give it to people that are on opiates because it displaces the opiates from the receptors and they go into withdrawal, which is exactly what Narcan does that we're now hearing about. Is the idea that you don't drink, like it keeps you from wanting to drink? Or is it if you do drink, it if you, helps you if metabolize you do it? Like, drink, what does it do? You get nothing pleasurable. So there's no incentive to drink. You don't get buzzed. Correct. And they did wow. an interesting study. They took 120 men with mild to moderate intake that wanted to cut back. And they half the group got the naltrexone, the other half got a placebo. And after three months, the naltrexone group had less cravings, fewer total days drinking, fewer total drinks per month. And these stats held up for about six months. So it's out there. If you have an issue with alcohol, you should certainly speak to your doctor about this. The drugs are safe. You can get dizzy or nauseous if your system doesn't do well with it, but you can get dizzy or nauseous if you binge drink. So, you know, pick your poison. Is that called alcohol use disorder? What is the, the, the medical term for somebody who's an alcoholic? So for alcohol use disorder, naltrexone is one of the medicines that can be given. There are other medicines that are given for this. But yes, naltrexone can work on a daily basis. And what's an alcohol, when you're an alcoholic, and we can move on, but how many drinks is that? What is defined? Alcoholism is really defined by when people drink during the day, when people's function is impaired, that's when you have a substance abuse issue. And by the way, this naltrexone, general practitioners know to give this, or do you have to see some addiction specialist or? Good question. I was wondering, like, does everybody know? Well, I think that general practitioners are usually not treating addictive disorders. That's a whole new specialty now. So I think someone listening that has any of these issues should seek out an addiction specialist. And there is a whole society now in a specialty area of medicine for addiction disorders. And is there a special training that you look for when you're looking for an addiction specialist so it's not somebody who used to be an addict who now has a shingle out? Is this a, you're looking for a doctor? You're looking for a psychologist? Well, you're looking for a doctor. Many of these doctors are, in fact, general practitioners. Some are psychiatrists. uh, But these are all physicians that have taken a special interest in this disease. It's an interesting disease because it is a multifactorial brain chemistry driven disease. Mm. So, and probably one of the hardest diseases to treat because there are the emotional, the physical, the family, the genetic issues that go into this. And treatment is not a short-term issue. Treatment is a lifelong issue. It's a chronic medical disease. Right. I mean, it's interesting because it's 
it's hard enough for people to admit if they have a drinking problem, just like a day-to-day alcohol thing. Imagine it might, folks might enjoy being in denial about having a binge drinking problem until you just, I guess, do it so much. You just get so hungover. You feel like such crap. You're like, well, maybe I should do try this. You know, it's one of those things that you're going to have, you're going to have to take a few laps before you realize that you have to not do it. It's also, it's an interesting way to self-soothe. And once someone does this, it becomes habit. I'm going to this event, I'm going to preload and oh. I'm going to be able to get through this. Right. Oh, I want to, I want to say something about that real quick. I had uh, an experience where I was helping a friend of mine uh, by not drinking during a certain time period. And it was really funny because I was like, I'm doing this for you. Like I'm helping you to support you. And in that time period, I was invited to the Emmys night before party with a friend of mine who was nominated that party is only for the nominees and their reps. And it was everybody in Hollywood. It's like really, and I obviously was going, doing my challenge and not going to do my drinking because I don't consider myself a problem drinker at all. But I realized going to this party that I totally would have not preloaded, but gotten there and immediately been like, I need to slam a couple back because I am not comfortable in this walking around with all these famous people. And it was really interesting to stand there with my friend who was nominated and she's talking to her old friend, Sir Ben Kingsley. And I was like, you know what? You're going to feel your uncomfortable emotions right now. And and also watching everybody completely get plowed throughout the night and just kind of watch <laughs> and be like, oh, good. I'm glad you didn't do that. It was a good experience for me to actually feel my social anxiety and go. And then at one point I walked up to Tony Hale and started doing some dumb song and dance number to him. And I thought that was interesting later in reflecting that I am just a party tramp I don't need alcohol to just be obnoxious at parties. So it was it was That's an interesting thing. Up. I need Thank a you. I it need was a, a moment of self-reflection. So here's here's the brain chemistry for binge drinking, which I think is interesting. Alcohol is a serotonergic, so it provides serotonin. Serotonin, we know people that are serotonin mm. deficient have high anxiety levels. So you add in the serotonin with alcohol and the anxiety lessons. So that's where that comes from. And I learned that because I read your book, Overdrive. <laughs> no, while I was eating, and I did it while I was eating Anna's tomato sauce. <laughs> plug, 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 plug. <laughs> David, one last question on this. And I always ask this because of when they do studies, I always wonder the people who show up for a binge drinking study or a alcoholic study may have the propensity already to want to be like Anna said, to want to be better and find out how this could affect them rather than somebody. So the propensity may be already there that that group or those test groups and those drug groups or alcohol groups have a propensity to join these tests to see because they have that propensity. So it may not translate to the general population. Does that make sense? Yes. And you're exactly right, Peter. These were 120 men that wanted to cut back, that knew they had a problem. So they wanted to be able to mitigate that issue. So yes, you're correct. Oh, oh, so when you hear studies- Finally. (laughs) Just making Anna feel better. Yes. Well, speaking of behavior being a problem, we're talking about the mental health of the nation in response to all these shootings. And it doesn't seem to be letting up anytime soon. Do you have any advice about how to cope with this? It's really tough to see every day in the news. It feels like every day at least. Buzz, my buddy who I was in the country radio station with, is with his son, Hank, at the concert in Vegas when the shooting started from the hotel room. I know every minute of that because he spelled it out for me. What They were under a car. He didn't know which direction to run in because no, there was no sense of where it's coming from. 
and he's watching stuff happen with his son and hoping his son's not seeing what he's seeing. And um, the trauma, and everybody knows somebody who, who's been through that or knows somebody once removed who's been through that. It's getting to be a national trauma. I'm worried that we're becoming desensitized to this. So when you ask about what, what can we do, it's almost like for those of us that are old enough to remember the Vietnam War, it, every day there was a list of how many people were killed. And these were thousands of people. This was not just a few people. And after a while, after a couple of years of this, you would read these numbers and they almost didn't register. And just this week, they published, I think it was 162, somewhere in their mass shooting since the beginning of this year. In 2023, yep. We've only had 100 and some odd days. There are more mass shootings. I did that math, Anna. There are more mass shootings than there are days in, since this year began. That's a horrible statistic. And so what do we do about this is an even bigger question. And it's complicated by the political environment that we're in and the amount of hate that we're seeing uh, in the world. It's a much bigger problem to solve. My feeling has always been that you should be able to identify this demographic that is going to use a gun against somebody else because that is not normal. And these people are not empathic people. These people often, not often, I think always have some behavioral red flags. And we've talked about AI in this podcast a few times. seems to me that if you took all these personality traits and all these behaviors and you put those into a computer, and then you ran all those statistics by age, by sex, by demographic of where people are living, income, history of child abuse, history of incarceration in the family, all these things that go into making up somebody that's predisposed to doing this. I would think that from early on, grade school, you would be able to start identifying those at risk and start helping those kids from a very early stage to get some understanding and some awareness. Uh, they should have sensitivity groups, I think, for these kids. There should be a mental health program starting probably in the first grade on whatever is age appropriate for that. When I went to medical school at UCLA, they did an interesting thing. There were 100 students. They divided us into groups of 10. And in each group, we had a psychiatrist and we had another clinical staff member. And we met once a week. We actually met for the first two days before we started medical school to sort of diffuse our anxiety about what was ahead of us, seeing mm. a dead body, giving bad news to people. Those of us <laughs> that were hypochondriacal and would get every disease that they wrote on the blackboard. But all of these things were factored in. And what happened is, is that we had a collective of a hundred kids that were all going through the same experience. And we all were able to commiserate with each other about what we learned. So that model to me should be extrapolated into the school system where you have a captured audience and you can start identifying these kids at risk. And then hopefully that there's a budget and it's their ability to help, you know, that there are things in place to get them to help. And Peter, that's, that's another issue with this is that the resources we have are so limited. There was an interesting statistic that over 90% of people that had substance abuse issues could not access a doctor. 
and of the people that had just straight on mental health issues without substance abuse, about half of those people couldn't get any mental health care. So it's the, the problem is so complicated. We have to start putting our attention and our resources into the mental health of this country. The CDC has actually listed gun violence now as a, as a critical medical emergency. This just happened. A new pill's out. We just talked about this pill before, the uh, binge drinking pill. A male birth control pill looks like it may be on the horizon, but I don't know, David, how far out is the horizon? Realistically, I think we're a couple years away on this pill. It's an mm. interesting concept. I think it will work. It's being studied in mice. But before we get to that actual pill, if we look at the problem, and this gets back to our previous conversation about the gun violence, there is a potential threat for women's reproductive rights and contraceptive issues. So we look at men. What can men do? And that brings up that a whole different conversation because, frankly, we haven't looked at this issue. We, we do have, as you said, Peter, in the introduction, we have condoms and sterilization available to us. But in the 1950s, the drug companies were faced with this issue about coming up with male contraceptives, and they just completely overlooked this. And they did this because they didn't want to invest in something that could potentially drive someone's libido or manhood into the ground. So I'm just wondering what the sexual demographic was of this group. But in the 1970s, there were experiments with male hormones being injected uh, for this very purpose to uh, cut down the production of testosterone and sperm. And the side effects were so terrible. It was atherosclerosis, there was insulin resistance, there was bone Oof. marrow suppression. So that then, everything got benched. And again, the money wasn't in it. And I think that the gender issue was probably significant in who was making those decisions. There's no problem now getting Viagra or Cialis uh, so that you can have sex and create children. But the opposite is now what we're looking at. So this pill that we're talking about that's being used on mice, it's it doesn't have a name yet. It has a number, which is TDI-11861. What's really ironic is that the drugs come from a family of drugs that are called SAC inhibitors. So stop laughing. No. SAC stands for soluble adenyl cyclase. Not scrotum anticoagulant. <laughs> That's what I, that was my so guess. So this, this pill. So stupid. I love making Peter laugh. So back to how this works. It immobilizes the sperm. It takes about two to three hours to, to work. And the sperm then regains its mobility after about 24 hours. Now, remember, this is in mice. So when we extrapolate this to humans, those, those metrics might change a little bit. There's also an injectable non-hormonal reversible gel that's under scrutiny at this point. It's called Vasagel. This is going to make every man listening to this cross their legs. You inject this directly okay, into check, please. <laughs> the vas deferens. And the vas deferens is a duct. It's inside the scrotum. It's a duct that carries a sperm from the testicle to the urethra. And they inject this directly into that. Uh, it immediately coats the wall of the duct. And so the sperm just can't 
move along. It's not neither can you. <laughs> and I'm still in the mood. What do I have? Have a medical surgical team come over to do? Honey, I'll be in in a minute. <laughs> Doctor Doctor Kesselman's here with his staff to give me the injection. Oh boy, can't wait to be upstairs. <laughs> Just wait for me. Wait for me. Put on some music and candles. <laughs> so that's ninety nine percent effective. It lasts ten years. Oh, so do they only have to hold me down years. and put a ball gag in oh, my mouth once? Great. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> they've also used, to get out of the scrotum, they've also used ultrasound, which was something interesting that came out of a 1970s experiment with a German doctor who was trying to kill microbes with ultrasound. What he found was that he also killed sperm. And so in 2012, oh, wow. they studied rats and dogs, and they use the same technology. Uh, they gave them two 15-minute treatments of ultrasound, right. delivered two days apart in a warm salt bath, and it lowered the sperm count to below fertility levels. If they did it three times, oh. they killed all the sperm. Whoa. So this is now, again, being studied for humans, and it's a lot easier to use. I think it's time to move on, I think. <laughs> Time for a caller. And today's question, Dr. Kipper, is from Ralph, and it's a sexual question, a sexual nature. Yes, Ralph, what's your question? Hey, Dr. Kipper, uh, I've been having an issue with premature ejaculation. It's kind of becoming an embarrassing issue. Um, is there anything that can be done to help? Thanks. Oh, how do you even define premature ejaculation? I would like to know this. Anna, that's one of the problems. It's a difficult question to answer how you define that, but it's generally defined as having an ejaculation before you're ready to do that. And there's a wide spectrum of what that means. And it's very common. There are few effective drugs for this. The SSRI drugs, the serotonin reuptake inhibiting drugs, the, we've all heard of these, the Prozacs and the Paxils right. and the Lexapros, they have a side effect that causes a delayed ejaculation. There's one in Europe that's an SSRI. It's not here. It's called Depoxetine, and that actually has the best effectiveness, but not here. There are pain medicines, believe it or not, that delay ejaculation. The opiate Tramadol is one of those. That's a side effect from that. The erectile dysfunction drugs do the same thing. They can delay ejaculation, Viagra, Cialis. Uh, there are three drugs currently under investigation for this, again, because these are side effects. One is Provigil. Mm. Provigil is a drug used for narcolepsy. Rapaflow, we use this for uh, prostate enlargement. And believe it or not, Botox injected into the muscles that cause the ejaculation. How far do you think that drug's going to go? But that's another drug that's being investigated for this. Well, before we talk about further into this, I'm just curious, what, what's the mental? I would think that the mental issues may outweigh the physical issues, or even if you have a physical issue, the first time or second time it happens, it, then it becomes, a, a, it could be a buildup as a mental issue. Absolutely. So the, the etiology or the origins of this problem are stress, anxiety, mental, previous sexual performance issues. It's, it's a long list, which is why there's no one treatment for this. So all of these treatment modalities, behavioral and pharmaceutical, need to be factored in. Getting back to what we have out there now, there are some topical numbing agents, creams, gels, sprays. They, they all have lidocaine or benzocaine in them, 
which are anesthetics, and they take down the sensation. You take those 15 minutes before sex, uh, you put that on, and it decreases the sensation and it delays the orgasm. Condoms, we all know what those do. What's interesting about the condoms is that there's actually a specialty condom uh, called Special Climax Control, which is a condom that is covered with lidocaine on the inside. And then there's a thick latex condom called Trojan Extended Pleasure. This is no plug. I have no relationship to the Trojan company. There is something that always has seemed difficult to, may I say, pull off. It's the pause-squeeze technique where you stimulate the penis, you grab the penis where the shaft meets the head of the penis, you continue squeezing until the urge has gone away usually because it's painful, uh, and then you start up again. There's a, there's a start-stop technique where you are engaged in your activity, and before you ejaculate, you stop, you wait until you are no longer aroused. I mean, this is not a romantic way to do this, but these are things that are currently out there. But let's talk about something you can do that's accessible to pretty much everybody, which is exercise. So they compared running for 30 minutes, five times a week, uh, to the SSRIs, and they matched up. So you got just the same benefit from running that you did from taking an SSRI. Why is that? So why do you think? I think partly because you're creating more endorphins from the running. So I think there's an anxiety issue, obviously, associated with premature ejaculation. And I think that's probably where that comes in. You can do pelvic floor exercises, Kegel What maneuvers. is a pelvic floor? What is a pelvic floor exercise? Anna, do you know what the Kegels are? I sure do. Doing them right now. For those of you that aren't Anna and, <laughs> and don't know, it's... Not noodle <laughs> Kegels? You, my, favorite, my favorite kegel, yes. <laughs> you squeeze the muscles in your anus like you're oh, holding that's, in okay, a bowel so that's movement. A squeeze. Got it. I got it. And okay. then you relax your pelvic floor muscles after each attempt. And you do this 10 to 20 times, and you've done your kegels. So you basically, you're just strengthening these muscles so you have more control. Instead of doing all this stuff, just think about baseball. Isn't that what guys well, do? Well, that's what we're told to do, but not everybody likes baseball. So, you know, that, yeah, it's got to be Oh, well, then that's audience. fair. Yoga, by the way, as another exercise, also has been shown in multiple studies to slow ejaculation. The cut through here is that medicine is just, the, the running is just as efficient as the SSRI in helping. That's pretty wrong. That's pretty wrong. So, Ralph, I hope we helped you with this, and if... If we scared you with this, uh, we understand. And if you took the SSRI for that, well, you've solved your problem. Before we go, do men come into you and admit that they have sexual issues? Or is that still a tough thing for God to admit even to their GP? Yes, it's a tough thing for men to talk about sex in general. Men don't talk about sex. Women will talk about sex. Men, you have to sort of pry it out of them. But it, it is not the, usually the lead complaint. But when you talk to people that are that are having anxiety, depression, sleep issues, uh, that's a question that you ask because that's not an oh. uncommon associated problem. Got it. Smart. Smart. So today we covered possible help for binge drinkers. We talked about the mental health of the nation, what we can all do. 
And in This Just Happened, we discussed not only the male birth control pill, but a number of other things that they're researching that could possibly bring male birth control beyond the condom. So that's pretty cool. And then in our final question from our listener, we discussed how to help premature ejaculation in males. So this was a very chock full episode. Thank you for joining us, everybody. Have a good week. The information on bedside matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on bedside matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.